I was devastated. And I thought, what do I do now? You know, how do I show up at conferences? It's humiliating. Maybe I should be a lawyer. And then I decided, no, this is what I want to do. I'm going to keep doing it. And I made myself get back on the horse. Welcome to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Let's get right into things today. Uh, right before we do, I'd just like to say that if you enjoy the show, you can give me a follow on Twitter or subscribe to my weekly newsletter, which I send out every Friday and includes the most interesting stuff I've come across that week, as well as anything coming from my own desk, like episodes of Cognitive Revolution. My guest today is a huge deal in the field of social psychology. She literally wrote the book on social cognition. It is called Social Cognition, and it sits on the desk of just about every social psychologist I know. She has mentored a tremendous number of students who have gone on to be outstanding researchers in their own right. She has one of those minds where you can feel the brilliance of her remarks between your fingers as you examine them. Uh, she is the Eugene Higgins Professor of Psychology and Public Affairs in the Department of Psychology at Princeton University. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Susan Fisk. So Susan, I'll give you a, a full introduction when the episode is released, but I just wanted to start off this conversation by saying uh, th that what stands out to me the most of your many, 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 many contributions to social psychology is your mentorship. Uh, because not only have you come up with so many ideas that have impacted this field, but really uh, the people that have come through your lab, you've, you've really consistently throughout the years groomed students to do the same in terms of contributing ideas. And I think that's a huge inspiration. And so thank you for taking the time to uh, talk to me today. Oh, well, my pleasure. Great. So uh, you're the author of a landmark book called Social Cognition, uh, co-author, I suppose. And in the opening pages of that book, at least my edition, you talk about a problem that uh, I personally have encountered a lot, and it's essentially that when you meet someone at a cocktail party and you tell them you're a psychologist, uh, people do this thing, uh, it's more or less the same thing every time, which is that they cover their foreheads and they ask if you're psychoanalyzing them at this very moment. And I'm wondering what strategies you have come up with over the years to combat this problem. What do you tell people at a cocktail party when you uh, get asked if you're, you know, psychoanalyzing them at this moment or some other similarly inappropriate question? Um, well, I try to use humor to, yeah. to defuse it um, because they're obviously threatened by that thought. Um, so I say things like, uh, I'm a psychologist, but I don't help people. <laughs> um, what do they make of or, that? Um, you know, I say I do research. Um, which already sounds boring to them. <laughs> Usually they go get another drink. Um, so basically I try to make it clear that I'm not, um, you know, reading their minds. I also sometimes say out front, uh, I'm a psychologist, but I don't read minds. And, you know, so if you have a sense of humor about yourself, then you're not so scary. Yeah. Why do you think people have such a, um, you know, inappropriate mental model of what it is that psychologists do? Well, I think they're more likely to bump into a therapist than a research psychologist, for one thing. Um, for another thing, if you take the membership of, say, 
the APA and the APS. The APA is like 80% clinicians, and I think it's got, you know, I mean, some incredible number of people, like 100,000. I mean, so anyway, the point is, it doesn't matter what the numbers actually are, but what matters is the percentages. So if, you know, even discounting for scientists not joining APA, the vast majority of people with PhDs or PsyDs who call themselves psychologists, you know, are in fact people who, who try to help people. So they're not wrong, maybe even from a, you know, probabilistic point of view to think that we're people who see patients. Yeah, absolutely. Is it is there anything that you wish that was more common about the way um, sort of the general public thinks about research psychologists? Do you think that they should, if, if, if there was, instead of, you know, sort of this image of sort of like a Freudian fainting couch and some sort of let's talk about your childhood banter, uh, is, is there something that you wish that more people knew about uh, what it means to be a research psychologist and the role that, uh, you know, research psychologists play in society? Yes, yes. I wish that they knew that we're good at understanding how to change behavior. Hmm. Because there's all kinds of, you know, most of the social and environmental and, you know, um, international con conflicts that we have, the problems we have are behavioral. So if you think about, you know, the majority of health issues, the majority of them can be ameliorated by changing your habits. And that's hard to do. If it weren't hard to do, otherwise, you know, we would all be doing it. And we know quite a bit about how to um, change people's habits, the science of behavior change. So in the health domain, certainly in climate and the environment, you know, it's all about human behavior and changing our, our habits and our behavior. Um, and, you know, in diplomacy and intergroup behavior, it's all about behavior. So, I mean, we can be really, really useful if they would just pay attention. <laughs> and I think, you know, one of the wonderful things in the last couple of decades is the nudge unit. Um, although, ironically, the behavioral economists are getting credit for that. But basically, it's social psychology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the nudge unit's a good example of something that's, you know, getting widespread traction in important places and governments around the, the world. Do you feel like your average psychologist is doing a good job of putting themselves out there to be clear about well, you know, what they know that's interesting and, and disseminating that in a way that the general public has an opportunity to pick up on? Um, well, I think we're better at it than we used to be. I think people have, that is academic psychologists, have taken the message that you know, our, our research is often paid for by taxpayers, and then we owe them information and we owe them an explanation about why we're useful. And so, you know, it used to be that people would say, oh, I don't want to dirty my fingers with, you know, publicity and things like that. But now everybody has, you know, Twitter and a podcast and a popular book. And so now it's seen as more okay to do and it doesn't make you uh, somehow a bad academic. It's not, not a trade-off the way it used to be. So I think we're better at it than uh, when I joined the field. Yeah, yeah, I see that trend as well. Is there, is there anything you'd like to see more of or is it just, you know, a matter of sort of more of the same? 
I would like to see more of our listening to people who aren't in our normal social circles. And so that includes academic perspectives from people who maybe are of a different um, background or, or, you know, sphere of thinking than your average academic, or just in general, two people, uh, uh, regardless of their background, just sort of Both. talking to each other. Yeah. Both. So, um, you know, there's been some discussion of whether social psychology is biased against conservatives. I personally don't think it is. I think that it's a structural point, which is that if you think the interesting variance is in the situation, then if you want to change things and make things better, you change the situation. That's a progressive leftist orientation. If you think that the interesting variance is in people's genes um, or their personalities or things that are more fixed, then, you know, if there are unfortunate things going on in the world, there's not too much you can do about that except diagnose it and describe it. And um, it doesn't make sense to work on the context because people are not going to change. So I think that what you have is a disagreement about how the world works, which is embodied in our fields. And so it's not surprising that, you know, many more social psychologists want to make the world a better place than, say, I don't know, uh, classic genetic psychologists. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really interesting. So, you know, I don't think it's, I mean, I understand that, that, that a focus on social issues makes some people uncomfortable. I do understand that. And I think it can make them uncomfortable for two reasons. One is that they're themselves conservative and they think a social issues orientation is leftist and so they feel out of place. And the other one is that somehow they think it's antithetical to science. And I dis really profoundly disagree with that. I have um, a long family history and my own personal predilection is to want to try to make the world a better place and um, do it with, with evidence and science. So that really goes back to when I was an undergraduate and a graduate student. Yeah, so uh, how did that begin to play out for you when you were an undergraduate and a graduate student? How did you transition from that sort of, um, sounds like family principle and being raised with this idea of doing something for social good uh, to transition to actually implementing that in what you were doing and uh, getting some traction on that? Well, I mean, I did have you know, one side of my family who were feminists and suffragists, going back to my great-grandmother, you know, and so um, I had ideas about gender, but also beyond gender, um, race and ethnicity as well, social class. Um, so I was predisposed, and then I was coming of age in the 60s and 70s when uh, we thought we could change the world. <laughs> We didn't seem to do a good job of that, but uh, there were certainly very specific things to protest, like you know the war in Vietnam and civil rights issues. Um, but it became clear to me that from my father, who was a psychometrician, that you can't just stand up and have opinions, that you have to have evidence for your opinions and evidence for what should be done about it. And the more psychology I took, the more it struck me that 
many things that were described as phenomena in our field were being described by white men. So, as an example, uh, I took a course where I learned about individual differences in uh, field dependence and field independence. So that's the phenomenon where you put somebody in a dark room and you put them in a chair that can tilt sideways slightly and you give them an orientation point in the dark room. And some people use their own uh, proprioceptive orientation and some people are more um, vulnerable to the cues. So the point is that some people depend on the field more to decide what's upright and other people depend on themselves more to decide that. So it occurred to me that if you call it field dependence, it sounds like a bad thing. And field independence sounds like a good thing. But why not call it field sensitivity and field insensitivity? You know, suddenly it's a different phenomenon. And, you know, in my own sophomoric way, I realized that, you know, women and minorities were field dependent or field sensitive. And the way you frame the question depends on who you are and where you sit. And I noticed a bunch of things like that, that particularly in individual differences research, there's almost no research where it's equally okay to be on both ends of the scale. And that seemed wrong to me, and it also seemed to me that it was partly a side effect of having you know, too much homogeneity in the field, and I realized that to bring some different points of view would happen spontaneously from you know, who I am as a person but that I would have to make arguments for what I believed was being ignored. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Uh, and, I, and I'm really interested, what, is the, what was the sort of first time that you realized that because you were coming in with a different perspective and because who you were was different than the sort of average person who was uh, conducting this research, that you realized that was actually to your benefit because you, um, you, know, you offer something unique? When did that start to click for you? That was well. Place? It wasn't so much experienced as um, you know. I offer something unique as I offer something that's being ignored, and I expected it to be resisted, because if the default point of view is field independence is good, or um, yeah, other things. Uh, if if that's the default, then other people are going to resist you saying, but wait, 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 there's different ways to look at this, and there are advantages and disadvantages to both ends of the spectrum. Um, so I didn't experience it as an advantage that I had. I experienced it as somebody's got to get in there and talk about things from other points of view, and, has to, and you have to have um, the tools and the methodology and the objectivity that's in, qu that's in quotes. Um, you know, or, or else they won't listen to you. <laughs> and so did you face uh, the resistance that you thought you would, you would face? Well, I think <laughs> almost to, uh, to an article, my most impactful articles have been the hardest to get published. You know, because they are not normal science. And so I've had to really fight the reviewer too, you know, um, and the editors, and said, no, no, this is good. I know it's good, you know, uh, and do another study. And so I think 
if you really believe that you have something distinctive to say, I wouldn't say it's an advantage, but I would say in the long run, um, you can have a big impact. But you have to persist and you have to play by the rules. You can't just say, well, they're, well, they're stupid. Yeah, so that's really interesting. So your most impactful papers, you uh, found difficult time placing them because you were saying something that was so at odds with what was accepted as convention in the field. And um, it took uh, more effort to get that point across because it was so different than what other people were saying. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I remember my dissertation study, um, you know, actually, that wasn't one of my most impactful papers, but I thought it was really good. and. It was turned. It went through three editors at JPSB because there was turnover in the editors. One editor lost it um, for a year. <laughs> this is in the days of paper submissions. Um, but the only reason I persisted was that I, it was a runner-up for the SESP dissertation award. And I said, okay, it can't be bad. It can't be as bad as they're saying because it almost won this award. And I think it's good. And so I persisted, and you know I rewrote the introduction four or five times, and you know eventually it did get published, but um, you know in, in our flagship empirical journal. But um, you know it was only because I persisted, and I had some external reassurance that you know this wasn't as bad as they thought it was. Um, but you know I think. More salient examples would be um, the stereotype content model. That was really hard to get published. I had to fight the reviewers and say, you know, we have yet another study that shows that this works. Also, ambivalent sexism. Um, you know, there were established sexism scales, and we had to we had to show that quote benevolent sexism was a phenomenon and it mattered. So. It um, going back, can you take the stereotype content one as uh, as an example? Can you maybe just give a brief synopsis of what that is and what at the time seemed so uh, controversial about it that you, that you had such a hard time convincing editors of its truth and its value? So the, the SCM came about because I was doing a handbook chapter. And it was about stereotyping and bias and so on. And um, I realized as I was writing it that, you know, 90% of the American data were about white biases against black people. And I thought, that's weird, you know, because we have a lot of other groups that we're biased against. And so I started to look and I found a little bit on Latinos. And then I thought, oh, yeah, right, there's this whole gender literature. And then I looked at, um, I forget what else, but maybe gay people, but there wasn't much going on then in terms of bias. So, you know, I started to assemble these different paragraphs that I could say about what was special about that form of bias. And then I thought, this is unsatisfying. It's a litany. It's a list of, you know, groups with different kinds of oppression. And then it struck me, I have a kind of carpet sweeper mind, you know, like I like to put things in tidy little piles. And so I said, oh, well, this is sort of like that, you know, and, and uh, you know, there are clumps of these 
outgroups that have some similarities to them. So, um, you know, I had a graduate student who was up for trying it out. He dropped off the project later on and moved on. But, you know, we got some preliminary data that suggested that there were a lot of groups that had mixed perceptions. And that was something new. Um, yeah, around the same time, I had been working on the ambivalent sexism scale, which says that, you know, traditional women are nice but stupid, and non-traditional women are smart but mean, cold. Um, so, you know, in retrospect, that also influenced what I was doing, but I wasn't conscious of it at the time. And, and so what was it that um, people found objectionable about well, the idea that there might be clumps of stereotypes and well, particularly along the so, lines of warmth and competence? Yeah, so the warmth and competence dimensions didn't bother anybody. In fact, several people said, oh, you know, I've been working on that too. And so I, you know, it turns out that lots of people have invented this idea. It goes way back to Solomon Ash, warmth and competence. Um, but what was objected, well, one, one objection was from the attitudes researchers who said, well, what you're talking about is not really ambivalence, because ambivalence says, I feel good and bad about this attitude object at the same time. So it's ambivalent. And I was talking about, you know, on one dimension they're good, another dimension they're bad. So the sort of nitpicking people in the attitudes area said, well, you can't call it ambivalence. I mean, so obediently the title got changed to mixed, <laughs> and then we later on reverted to uh, ambivalence. But so that was one thing that, that people said, this is my turf, the attitude area, and you have to respect what we've already done, and we're not so sure that this is anything new. Um, so one of the ways we showed that it was new was we said, well, we can predict from social structure whether the group will be seen as warm or not. Are they competitive or cooperative? Um, and co and uh, uh, competent or not, how high is their status? So that's an out external variable that predicts standing on the main two ones. And then emotions and behaviors have specific predictions too. So, so part of it was just making the case that this wasn't just the same old thing. Um, I think another part of it was that we were doing survey data, and so we didn't have a lot of causality. Um, you know, they weren't, we didn't start doing experiments till later. So what do you make of this sort of discrepancy between, so obviously at the time people weren't buying it, and then now uh, looking at it uh, as, as it's grown into its uh, prominent place in the field, in retrospect that seems crazy to have thought. So what, what do you make of that disparity, especially if you are sort of advising one of your students now who's trying to publish something and, you know, uh, receiving a lot of pushback? Um, do you still think the same mechanisms are at play? What do you, what, what's your take on that? I think the strength of the SCM is it's very intuitive. And I also think that that's its downfall, right? So... I can explain the SCM to a to a Uber or Lyft driver, right? It's not that hard. You say, yeah, look, think about old people are discriminated against differently than, say, rich people or Asian people, um, which are different from homeless people. You know, and you talk about it, and they go, yeah, yeah, they get it. 
So the intuitiveness of it then says, oh, other people have thought of parallel ideas before. So that's the it's not new complaint. So, you know, the, the intuitive appeal is, is, is part of the problem and part of the strength at the same time. Hmm. And do you still think and then, that... Yeah, and then, and then also we have this, you know, after 20 years of working on it and feeling pretty cocky about all the data that we had from all over the world, um, you know, we have these adversaries who showed up and said, we're not getting your results. So do you want me to go into that? Yeah, no, please... Yeah, take me through the, what that was like. Um, so, you know, I'm feeling pretty proud of it, and a lot of students have, of mine and other people have based their careers on some aspect of this warmth by competence model. And then um, I was asked to be on an advisory committee in Cologne, um, University of Cologne. And I went over there, and a graduate student got up at the conference, mini-conference, and he presented multidimensional scaling data that came up with competence, basically, our, one of our dimensions, but the warmth dimension was not there. Instead, he found a dimension of progressive conservative beliefs. And I thought, really? I mean, somebody's coming toward you down a dark alley and you want to know who they voted for? I don't think so. You want to know what their intentions are. You know, are they going to mug you or are they going to let you leave you alone? But, you know, they were skilled scientists and sincere, and I think they originally thought that if they did multidimensional scaling, they would generate our dimensions spontaneously, and I'd always meant to do that technique. And so I said, well, try it this way, try it that way, try it this other way, think, you know, turn it on its head. So I kept trying to, you know, think about why they were getting something different, and they were very cooperative and respectful, and they kept getting what they were getting, and... Um, you know, my first impulse was that I hoped that they would go away, <laughs> you know, and not get published, but I wasn't going to, you know, sabotage them or anything, but I just felt like maybe if I don't pay attention, this won't matter. But, you know, they, they persisted and smart, hardworking people, and it got into JPSP, and then I started to hear from people, oh, well, your model is dead, this other model is right. And I thought, Wow just takes one article, you know, to tear down 20 years of work, okay. Um, so then this guy, Alex Koch, um, contacted me and he said, can I come to your lab? And that initially freaked me out because, you know, my adversary wants to come to the lab, uh oh. And then I thought, well, I'm a scientist, I have to say yes. So he came and we together with uh, Vincent Iserbet from Belgium, who happened to be visiting at the same time, the three labs sort of thought of what the differences are between our paradigms and can we bottle those differences and um, can we manipulate them. And so, in fact, we've gotten together on a very productive adversarial collaboration, and science has moved forward. We've figured out why they get what they get and why we get what we get. And um, so it feels like progress. So instead of trying to destroy each other, which is sort of the default, you know, we're trying to work together to see, on the basis of trusting each other's results, but not knowing why they're happening, to try to figure that out. So I feel it's very gratifying in the end. Um, 
And when I was younger, I probably would have been more inclined to try to destroy them. Although, you know, not a graduate student or fresh PhD, that seems kind of horrible. But, but I think I would have felt more competitive with them, you know, and they would have been more of a peer. But, you know, in this stage of my career, I can afford to, to try to work harder on diplomacy, I guess I would say. That's really cool to see. So do, do you feel like you're seeing more of that in the field? Or do you still feel like there's this um, sense of bullying and jockeying for uh, <laughs> position? Uh, what is your uh, reading on that at large? Well, I think there was an unfortunate time period, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago, um, when there were a lot of people complaining about um, methodological sloppiness in the field. And, you know, I think that that's an important set of arguments to make. Um, and there were some, you know, there, there has been some sloppiness and some drift. I think that always happens over time. So when I was coming out um, of graduate school, people were talking about experimenter expectancy effects and saying the entire field of social psychology is going to fall apart because of experimenter expectancy effects. Well, everything is just, you know, caused by what the experimenter expects. And so, um, uh, you know, we decided, okay, well, you have to be careful, make people blind to condition. And so that made the problem go away, basically. And so the, there was a crisis when I was coming out as a fresh PhD, and there were symposia at conferences about the crisis in social psychology and not just methodological issues, but relevance and um, theories and so on. So, so, that, so I'd lived through it once before. So when this started to happen again more recently, you know, I wasn't so worried about it until it started to work on trying to take people out as individuals. And that seemed to me not okay. So, you know, it's one thing to have an adversarial interaction with a particular person and say, I disagree with you and here's why, and let them counter-argue it, and you go back and forth. And it's, in, classically, it's been curated by somebody, by a journal editor, you know, and there's back and forth and rebuttals. But what I was seeing was because of social media, basically, individual critics were hanging people out to dry. And, you know, the sort of feeding frenzy that happened where people would pile on, it was actually probably more like Lord of the Flies, you know, that somebody would, would be criticized and then other people would say, yeah, yeah, this is terrible. It's... So there was this sort of piling on phenomenon which didn't really give the person who was being criticized time and thoughtfulness to be able to respond in a non-defensive way, you know, when, when that's happening rapidly and happening all at once. So social media tend to speed up the responses and to magnify them in terms of numbers. So, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, three or four things have happened as a result of the so-called replication crisis. You know, we've gotten more 
careful again about statistical power. We used to care about that, and then we forgot, and now we care about it again. Um, we've gotten more careful about uh, researcher degrees of freedom and not being able to sort of adjust your hypothesis to fit the data. Um, you know, so I think that, that some of those things are, are salutary. They're very beneficial. But what I don't think is good is the bullying. And, you know, I've seen people's careers destroyed by it, and that's not okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, thanks for sharing that perspective. That's very nice. So yeah. I, yeah. I'd like to, yeah, go ahead. No, it's all right. Um, so I'd like to go back and talk a little bit more about uh, your early years. In particular, it seems like you were definitely brought up from a young age with this expectation uh, that you would do something uh, interesting and impactful and clearly, I'm sure you demonstrated aptitude for it young and, uh, you know, your parents brought you up, uh, you know, thinking a certain way. Were you, my question is, were you always going to become a professor or a psychologist <laughs> or an academic or were there other things that you wanted to do? Well, it's so funny because um, I agonized. You know, I, I, I tried majoring in five other things before psychology. You know, I thought, oh, I'll major in English lit because I love reading fiction. And then I discovered it wasn't about the books. It was about the critics. And I thought, well, that's not what I want to do. So then I thought, I'll, I'll be a philosopher because that's about people making decisions. And then the intro philosophy course I took was all logic. I said, no, that's not really what I'm trying to get at. And then eventually I, I was able to take a sort of broad interdisciplinary um, social relations major, which you could get credit for doing psychology or anthropology or sociology. I thought, okay, fine, that'll give me the flexibility to study people and how they decide what to do with their lives. So I was doing a little bit of me-search, <laughs> I think. Um, and so part of my resistance was that my father was in the field and I didn't want to do psychology just because he, he did it. And then I realized I was being just as controlled by him being in the field if I had to avoid it because he did it, as a, you know, to do it because he did it. So I caved in and majored in psych. And then um, you know, it turned out I was good at it. And I, so this is how long ago this was and what the era was like. I didn't know what my grades were in anything. My parents thought I knew because they assumed I got the transcript, but I never got the transcript. They got the transcript. This is before FERPA. And so when I was in my senior year, I said, I better decide what to do with myself. So I requisitioned my transcript, and it was really clear that I, every time I took a psych class, I got an A, and every time I took other things, I got a mix of grades. And so it was really a sort of, you know, self-perception phenomenon. Oh, I guess this is what I want to do. It's revealed preferences. Um, and so I went to a high school reunion, I don't know, 10 years out or something, and somebody said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm a professor, going to be a professor. And he said, oh, of course. I said, well, I'm, I'm glad you knew because <laughs> I sure didn't know. <laughs> you know, and I dropped out of school for, well, I didn't drop out exactly. I, junior year, I went on a trip around the world with two faculty and 30 students. And, you know, basically, we just traveled. 
together and lived with families and had amazing experiences, but I wouldn't say it was the most academically rigorous thing I ever did. But if I hadn't done that, I might have dropped out. So, you know, it wasn't clear to me that I was going to be an academic, or maybe I was just resisting it so I could feel like I had chosen it. Um, but I will say that, um, first of all, I went to the University of Chicago Lab School for elementary school and high school, and it was a wonderful intellectual environment. Um, but then, um, being an undergraduate at Harvard was a bit alienating for me. I was kind of a deer in headlights, and it was it struck me as a very power-oriented kind of place. It didn't work for me. But uh, then I met Shelley Taylor, my advisor, and the way I met her was that um, my senior thesis was a complete waste of time partway through the year. I realized that. And so I said to one of my roommates, I had a dozen roommates in a group house, I said, what do I do? What do I do? And he said, well, you could work on research. I said, how can I do that? And he said, you can volunteer. And I said, well, why would a professor want me? I don't have any skills. And he said, you're free labor. Um, so, uh, you know, I said, well, who do I talk to? And he rattled off some names, one of which was a female name. And I thought, well, that might be easier. So I went to see her, and uh, it turned out she was a first-year assistant professor. And I said, I want to work on your research. And she said, oh, oh, okay. Uh, well, um, come back tomorrow. And overnight, she designed a study, and we ran the study. It was a, you know, it, lab study in person, and people did what she predicted they would do, and I thought, okay, this is for me. I like this. It has theater in it. It has people and principles of people. It has statistics. It has writing. It has everything I like to do. So, you know, it, it became a fit, but it wasn't self-evident to me, although it was apparently self-evident to my high school classmates. Wow, that's lovely. So, um, I guess there's a couple things that I'd, I'd like to touch on in that. One is I'm kind of interested in this um, trip that you took. So it sounds kind of uh, spur of the moment or unstructured. And I'm interested in uh, sort of how that created a lasting impact on you. And perhaps whether it, you know, had any bearing on the way that you think about people from other cultures and variants uh, explained by people's situations and uh, that sort of thing. Well, it was totally amazing, actually. Um, so in the spring of my uh, sophomore year, there was an ad in the school paper that said, go around the world and get credit for it. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm, I'm in. Um, so, you know, as a faculty member, I. I would love to get this phone call. So this rich guy calls up Gregory Bateson and says to him, how would you like to go around the world with another faculty member and both your families and 30 hand-picked students? Wait, and are you, you serious? It was Gregory Bateson that led your trip? Yes. Wow. Who was the other yeah. faculty? Well, so let me finish. So, okay, so sorry, basically, sorry, sorry, sorry. he said to Bateson, you can, you can pick the other person. And... I mean, I would love to get that phone call. Oh, my God. Um, 
So Bateson said, I'm going to do nature nurture and let's get a genetic psychologist. So he asked um, Daniel Friedman from the University of Chicago, who was at that point a sort of, you know, this is before epigenetics. It was sort of basically genetic psychology. Um, and the theme that they picked was tracing Buddhism backwards from its furthest reaches back to its origins. So we started in Hawaii and went to Japan and um, Hong Kong trying to get into China, although we, at the time we couldn't get into China, um, and Bali and Sri Lanka and India. And we stayed with families each place that we were. And my project evolved. It was sort of not planned exactly, but um, I was doing some meditation and I decided to learn meditation in each culture that we went to. And the technique is pretty similar everywhere, but the way they teach it is different. So, you know, in every, every culture, um, every, you know, all these spiritual traditions in Asia, you concentrate on something, either physical or mental, and um, you don't beat yourself up when, you, when your mind wanders. Um, and, you know, it's isolated and quiet and silent and so on. But, you know, in Japan, if you don't sit up straight, they whack you. <laughs> and in Burmese Buddhism, uh, at least the teacher that we had, I mean, it was brutal. We were meditating 12 hours a day, and my knees were killing me and, you know, everything. And he just made jokes the whole time about it and teased us. So, you know, it was interesting to see that you could take the same phenomenon and di have different cultural treatments of it. And so Bateson was very um, into that and very, um, uh, I mean, he had, he had an amazing mind. He had, he was clearly a genius. And I don't say that lightly. There are not too many people I would be willing to say are geniuses. But he talked in sort of meta ways. So, you know, we had classes, kind of, um, and he would tell stories the whole time. And, you know, he was in his 70s at that point and had lived all over the world and had interesting experiences. So he told stories the whole time. And for about three months, I'm like, these are interesting, but what, what's the point? And then I began to realize that they all had a pattern and that he was trying to get us to, to uh, you know, figure out what the pattern was. So what he was saying was that there's learning, for example, and then there's learning how to learn. And so when I was studying meditation, I was learning how to learn meditation. You know, which is a really interesting idea. And people say that about languages. You know, once you've learned a couple languages, you learn how to learn languages. So he was full of stuff like that. And um, his work on Steps to an Ecology of Mind was sort of mind-blowing. Um, so he, he was wonderful to listen to, and um, almost nobody could engage with him because he was at such a sort of stratospheric level. But, um, but you asked a different question. You asked how it affected my seeing people um, in the different cultures differently. 
I guess what it did was what many people experience when they live in another culture, and you don't have to live in six different cultures, just one will do, where you realize that your way of seeing the world is not the only way to see it. And um, so, yeah, that's in a nutshell what I got out of that. Well, that's a phenomenally a, just amazing trip. I, I can't even believe that you got the opportunity to do that. Yeah, I, I can't either. I can't <laughs> wow. either. I, I would like to suggest, hello, if there's some rich person out there that they do it in general. It doesn't have to be me. Um, so this rich guy went around the world with his family, with these two faculty, and basically he picked Bateson because he wanted to listen to him for a year. Yeah. So I think, you know, the Gates family should do that. I yeah. guess I guess it's probably too self-indulgent, but... <laughs> Um, perhaps um, so I guess I want to touch a little bit more on um, so part of what what drew you to um, to Shelley was that uh, you were interested in the idea of having a female role model so yes. I'm interested in your experience of did you have um, sort of uh, you know female colleagues female role models uh, and how how was that important for you? How did that play out for you early in your career? Well, you have to understand that when I was um, an undergraduate and graduate student at Harvard, when I started out as a graduate student, Shelley and then one person in developmental were the only women in the whole department. So, you know, it wasn't clear to me whether this was, um, you know, something I could do. So, you know, also it was, you know, potentially emotionally complicated because of my dad being in the field. Um, but I just thought if I go work with her, somehow it'll be less complicated. And what I realized over time is that it also showed me how to do it, like how a woman could do it. So, and Shelley dealt with those things um, by... You know, she'd go to a conference and a male faculty member would say, oh, let's go have dinner. And she'd say yes, and then she'd bring a bunch of her female graduate students with her to dinner. <laughs> you know, so she made it into a group event. She deflected, you know, some of the um, sexual harassment. So, you know, that may seem like a limited reason to pick an advisor, but it, there was more than that. You know, when she had kids, I saw how she managed children and work and, um, you know, even what to wear and what's appropriate. When, I mean, so basically uh, I worked for her as a research assistant for a year after, or part of a year after um, senior year while I was applying to graduate school. And she worked hard and she played hard and I looked looked at her and I said I would like to do that I want to be who she is and if she had been you know a 60 year old guy it would have been harder for me to imagine how to get from where I was to where she was so I think the role model thing is real um, I don't think it's required that people have a same identity person as a advisor and now we have more diversity in our departments and so you can you know, you could have somebody as a secondary advisor or you could just watch how they manage things and you don't have to be their primary advisee. 
Um, and I've had in my career, you know, plenty of guys as advisees, and I think they've done fine. Um, but, you know, at the time, there was nobody else to learn from how to do this. And particularly, gender would have been very salient because there were hardly any of us. Were there uh, any sort of moments of uh, feeling like you might not be able to do it that, uh, did you ever think about quitting? Oh, God. (laughs) Yes. Um, So I think when I go on colloquium visits now and have the um, routine lunch with graduate students, I almost always now tell them about what happened to me when I came up for promotion because I think it's important for people to know. And that was that where I was, the promotion was, the decision was a promotion to associate professor, but not a tenure decision, um, which happens some places. And my department chair going into the meeting said, make sure I have your latest CV because we might bring you up for tenure early. And I thought, oh, okay, that's great. And then the meeting was over and I didn't hear from him. And this, you know, this is like all afternoon. And then I went home and I wondered what was going on. And 24 hours after the meeting, he called me into his office and he said, your colleagues want you out. And I was totally blindsided by that. And he said, I've gone to the president of the university and I've come up with a new category for your promotion, which is a terminal promotion, which is we're going to promote you to associate because your outside letters say you're great, but nobody here wants you. <laughs> so I was pretty devastated by that. Um, I think it was caused by my being politically stupid um, and not having other people besides the department chair who felt some connection to me and to my work. Um, there were a lot of reasons for that, partly that I was meant to bridge social and cognitive, and the social people thought I was too cognitive, and the cognitive people thought I was too social, so nobody owned me. Um, you know, so there were a variety of reasons. Oh, the other one was that I wrote the social cognition book at the request of the same department chair. You know, your department chair asks you to do something, you typically try to do it. And it took away a lot of time from getting empirical work done. Um, so in the long run, it was a good move. It's the most cited thing I've ever done. In the short run, it was bad for a tenure decision. So, you know, when he told me that I had a terminal promotion, it sounded like they were going to terminate me. <laughs> um, I was devastated. And I thought, what do I do now? You know, how do I show up at conferences? It's humiliating. Maybe I should be a lawyer. And then I decided, no, this is what I want to do. I'm going to keep doing it. And I made myself get back on the horse. And I went to conferences and I said, you know, I was promoted to associate and I'm looking for a job. And then, you know, my next job, I realized, oh, this is a completely different environment. People are open to risk-taking, interesting ideas that may or may not work. Um, They wanted me to succeed. And it was a whole different ballgame. And I had a very productive 15 years at UMass Amherst where, you know, wonderfully creative intellectual people who, you know, made your work better. They didn't try to tear it down. 
And so that's, that's really where I came up with several of the theories that I'm known for. So, you know, I think um, it's horrible and humiliating not to get promoted or not to get tenure, um, but it's survivable if you make yourself get back on the horse. And in my case, I engaged in revenge productivity. Well, that's, uh, that's absolutely amazing. Uh, I love that story. Uh, so we are bumping up against uh, sort of our time allotment here. Do you, do you have time for perhaps one more question? Sure. Yeah, so I guess um, what I'd like to know is that since you do have such a, a long history of mentoring uh, amazing researchers who go on to have fantastic careers in their own right, what's something that you've observed that separates the people who go on to do something really special um, from the people who uh, don't, and you know, maybe choose a different track, or maybe just you know, they never find quite that traction. What do you think it is that separates those two kinds of outcomes? Um, motivation. So I think when people get admitted to graduate school, you know, the, the committees know how to pick people with a certain level of talent. And you know, nobody should feel like an imposter in graduate school because the committees know what they're doing. But then during graduate school, what I try to do is do a sort of graded um, de-escalation of um, supervision and control on my part. So I try to groom people to get more and more independent of me during graduate school. And if people are really motivated and their lives are not too complicated and they're not finding themselves at the same time they're trying to do graduate school, then they pick up on that and develop the ability to, um, de you know, to develop an independent line of work. So that's a big piece of it is can they get beyond being a good research assistant or being a good student to having um, some trust in their ideas. And, and part of what I try to do is to train them or sensitize them to listen to the little voice in the back of your head that says, why did they do that study that way? Or why does this field not have anything about stereotype content instead of just stereotype process? Or how come nobody studies this? Um, and to pay attention to that voice instead of shrugging it off and you know, soldiering on um, with whatever you're meant to be doing. Because those little queries in the back of your brain turn out to have a pattern, and they turn out to come up all the time. So you say, oh, I must be really interested in this. And pursuing something that keeps bugging you is really what it's all about, from my point of view. And that's what I see, is the people who are the most creative are the ones who listen to that little voice of doubt in their own head. And then you develop it. And in my case, you know, we develop it as a conversation between me and the student. And sometimes I'll say, well, that was really done before. You have to show me why what you're doing, saying is different. Um, or, you know, we both together read more and discover where that idea fits in. But that's really the point is to listen to that voice in the back of your head that has questions and queries. 
Well, uh, Susan, this has been uh, incredibly interesting and a huge pleasure to talk to you. And I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, answer some of these questions and go into some of these stories. And uh, I think a lot of people will, will find them really inspiring and engaging and interesting. So thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. Sure. Well, I hope to be, in, hope to be useful. Yeah. Thank you very much, Susan. I'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Take care. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for listening to Cognitive Revolution. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Susan Fisk. And remember that if you like the show, the best way to keep up with everything going on is by following me on Twitter or through my weekly newsletter. Thank you so much, and I'll see you back here next week. Thank you.